Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 23rd of January, Tom O'Toole taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Tom took us through the book of John. Tom is one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and a regular teacher at School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Great, thanks Andy. Thanks everyone. It's great to be here with you uh, for another year of School of Theology. Uh, Welcome back, those of you who were on last year, and uh, welcome for the first time, those who are starting this year. It's great to be here. And uh, as Andy said, we're going to be looking at John's Gospel this morning. Um, My story, I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. And uh, the day that I became a Christian, a a friend of mine uh, gave me a gift. He gave me a Bible and he he wanted to equip me for the Christian life. So he gave me a Bible to read. And uh, I, I said to him, like, okay, where should I start? Shall I just start at the beginning or uh, is, is there anything you'd recommend to me? And he said, let's start with one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And I chose John's Gospel. It was the first part of the Bible that I read after I became a Christian. And I found it brilliant. As someone without much background knowledge, it, it was so, um, so just so full of truth about Jesus. It, it's, it built some foundations for me. It let me see who he is and what he came to do. <coughs> Great book for a brand new Christian. But you know what? I've read John's Gospel many times in the years since. And every time I read it, I find something new. I find things that I didn't see the first time or the next time or the next time. It's such a rich book. It's deep. Uh, there, there are treasures in there to, to draw out of it. So uh, for a new Christian or for an uh, older, more mature Christian alike, John's Gospel is a brilliant book to be looking at and uh, what what I'm going to do Andy mentioned the breakout rooms just uh, one other thing that I'd want to mention is as we go if anything that I say or anything that you see in John is provoking questions in you I want to give you the opportunity to ask those questions as well Um, and we have the chat function on zoom so please do feel free as we're going just type questions in as you have them And then at the end of this session, before we move on to the Trinity, we'll have a look at whether there are any questions and uh, we'll we'll do our best to get to those as well if they haven't been covered already. So feel free to do that. John's Gospel, let's just start by uh, giving you a little bit of background on it. Um, Right at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21 and verse 24, uh, it says this. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So he's identifying himself as the author with a character in the story, with uh, with a particular disciple who's referred to throughout the book as the disciple who Jesus loved. And uh, looking at the other Gospels and looking at church history, we've identified this with John. Uh, The disciple John is never named in John's Gospel, but uh, referred to as the disciple who Jesus loves it's his way of talking about himself now you've had some people who have suggested possibly other people who it might be who wrote the book uh, i'm taking it this morning uh, face value that this disciple who jesus loved who it says wrote it is the one who wrote it but if you want to get more into that in the um in the notes i put a, a recommendation to a don carson commentary it's quite a big old commentary um i've got it here um, but he gets into it in, in detail. So I'd recommend you that if you would like to know more about it. But, but where this book comes from is John was the last of Jesus's disciples still alive. So all of the, the others uh, had been killed for their witness to Jesus. And he was the last surviving one. And out of the four Gospels, his account was the one that was written last And it's the one that's most different to the other three. So Matthew, Mark and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. And essentially what they're doing is they're telling uh, 
fundamentally the same story. They're using the same uh, material. They're telling about the same incidents. If, if you read Mark and you read Matthew, you think, wow, these are very similar books. Like bits of it are word for word the same, uh, but the flow of it is very similar, same uh, as Luke. And uh, Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke used Mark's account and used other things that they knew and other things that they discovered to build on it into their gospels. Having moved on a decade or two, then you've got John, the last surviving disciple would have been aware of those books. And so when he wrote his gospel, he didn't want to just duplicate the stories about Jesus that were already out there. He wanted to add to it with things that he remembered with his recollection of the story of Jesus. So John's gospel is, is very different. You'll find things in here that aren't in the other gospels, and you'll find things left out of John that are in the other Gospels. That's a very deliberate thing on John's part. He uh, has curated his material. In fact, he says at the end, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He says there's a lot to tell. I've chosen some of the things for a specific purpose. I've got a reason for what I have written. And, and he tells us his purpose uh, in chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many of the signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's chosen to write what he's written for this purpose, that we, the reader, may believe. It's not just to inform us, but it's to provoke faith in us, to provoke belief and not, not just any kind of intellectual assent, but saving faith, the, the belief that means we have eternal life. That's his goal in writing this book. And the way he writes it, one word that comes up again and again and again in, in this book is the word witness. He'll talk about different witnesses and it's like he's a, he's a lawyer making his case to us, the reader. And so he's calling different witnesses to the stand to tell us what they can tell us about who Jesus is so that we may believe. When I read through it, I found seven witnesses called by the, the term witness that he uses. For seven's quite big in John. He'll, he'll do a lot of things in sevens to say this is like the completion of it. But as we go through it, you'll find uh, one witness that he calls is John the Baptist. We'll see how God the Father is a witness to Jesus. Uh, and with God the Father uh, and the Son, uh, that particularly will come into our second session this morning as well. How do the Father and Son relate to each other? Uh, we'll see how the scriptures are a witness to Jesus. We'll also see that Christ himself is a witness, and we'll look at some of the things that Jesus said about himself. And, uh, and this comes in the form of uh, what, what are called the I am sayings of Jesus. There are seven sayings in this book where Jesus says, I am something. So, so I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he's describing in his own words who he is. That's Jesus's witness testimony to himself. Another of the witnesses is the works that he's done. He, he says to people, look, if you're not going to believe on the basis of what I've said, at least believe on the basis of the works that I've done and the things you've seen with your own eyes. And uh, again, there are seven particular signs that make up the book of John, miraculous things that Jesus has done that show us something about who he is. We'll also see how the Holy Spirit is a witness to Jesus. And again, that comes into our second session on the Trinity as well. And finally, the disciples are a witness and uh, they're told to go and tell what they have learned about Jesus. Now, I find when we do this, when we uh, look at a, a, a theology uh, from a book of the Bible, the best thing isn't just for me to try and summarize some themes that I've picked out, but actually for us to let John tell his story, to work through it together uh, and to experience the journey that he wants to to take his readers on. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to work through the book of John, looking at uh, the, the flow of the story, what he's trying to bring out, what he's trying to highlight at different moments. I would recommend to you uh, 
if you want to grab the, the notes that I sent, um, there, there's space to make your own notes on them. But I'd particularly recommend making sure you've got a Bible with you uh, as we go through this, because we'll be uh, kind of bouncing off what it says uh, rather than uh, kind of just me summarising things. But um, if, if you just turn to John chapter one and we'll, we'll look where he begins and uh, the, the first section really is a prologue. And, and obviously I won't be reading the entire gospel this morning but i thought it would be good for us to read the start of it and to to see how john sets this thing up so i'm going to read the first 18 verses uh, now just to to set up where it's all going in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Unlike some of the other Gospels, John doesn't start with Christmas. He doesn't start with uh, the story of Jesus uh, being born in, uh, in the stable. But he takes us right back to the very beginning. Before the world was made, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He's starting by telling us this one he's talking about, Jesus, was with God in the beginning and that he is God. He's telling us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's telling us how he is the light, how in him is life. He's setting up these claims that through the gospel, these witnesses are going uh, to, to show us that this is true and cause us to believe. And I, I wonder if you noticed uh, the echoes of the book of Genesis, the start of the Bible. In the beginning, God said, in the beginning was the word. Jesus, right from eternity past. I wonder if you noticed as well how we met the first of our witnesses already. He talks about a John, the man who was sent by God. He came as a witness. He said this character, John, is going to have some things to tell us. And then as chapter one goes on, we hear a bit more of the testimony of this witness, John the Baptist. So from verse 19, uh, people start asking John about who he is. And John's answer is, well, I, I'm not the Christ. It's not about me. And they're, they're pressing him. Well, who are you then? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he said, no, no, I, that, that's not it. Uh, and then the, the only answer he gives is, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's a, a, a verse from uh, Isaiah chapter 40 that he's referencing. But his job is just to get people ready, to set people up for the one who is to come. And so then uh, they ask him, well, why are you baptizing then? And uh, he said, look, I baptize with water, but someone is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoelaces and then uh, it says verse 29 the next day he saw jesus coming to him 
and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Here, here is the one. This is the person who I've been talking about, who I've been setting up everything for. He will take away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And the, verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is John's witness testimony. He's the first one who makes the claims for us and invites us to believe. Well, then in the rest of chapter one, we see Jesus started to recruit some disciples. Uh, and these are people who had been uh, initially recruited into John the Baptist's ministry. But John has pointed them to Jesus and they're following Jesus now. One of them is, is Andrew. Uh, and then Andrew uh, goes and tells his brother about the one who he's discovered. His brother is, is Simon Peter, the most famous of the disciples. And he came too. And we also see uh, Philip and Nathaniel recruited as well. So Jesus is starting to gather a little group now to travel, to minister, and to teach with. And then going down into chapter 2, we see the first of these seven signs. I, I, I told you we're going to see seven signs through uh, the Gospel of John. And the first one is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And, and the point of a sign isn't just that it's something done that makes us say, oh, that was cool. It's a signpost. It signifies something. And it points us to something about who Jesus is. Now, I, I think it's good on a morning like this, not just to hear um, truths being told, but to engage with stuff as well. So uh, with this first sign, what I uh, thought we could do is maybe go into our breakout rooms for, for 10 minutes. And uh, just in your group, introduce yourself to each other. If you uh, can read through uh, John chapter 2, 1 to 11, maybe someone in the group or a couple of people in the group uh, split it and read that out loud. And then just discuss how this particular story serves as a signpost to who Jesus is. Welcome back. I hope you found uh, your breakout room helpful. Everyone's just coming back and joining us uh, now very fast. Lots of screens are appearing very quickly. I think that's pretty much everyone back now. So we'll just hand back over to Tom to, to continue with us this morning. Great. Thanks, Andy. Um, one thing I noticed with Zoom is when you've been in a breakout room and come back, it often leaves you not on mute. So if you wouldn't mind just putting yourselves on mute again, that would be great. Thank you. So uh, I'm not sure what you discussed in your groups. Um, I, I think from a story like this, there's quite a few things that you might have drawn out and, uh, and seen. It's a, a rich story. Um, one of the things that when, when I read it jumps out at me is the difference between what there was at first and what there was at the end. So um, before there was this wine and no one was complaining, it was fine. But the wine that Jesus created from the water, it, it was so much better. It was remarkable. Everyone was commenting upon it. The difference between the old and the new and as a signpost i think this story uh, is showing us that what jesus has come to bring is so much better than what was there before in fact this has uh, been hinted upon already in the prologue that i read verse 17 of chapter one uh it said for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ what there was yeah that was fine but what is to come is so much better now this kind of old and new theme, uh, it kind of runs through the next few chapters of the book. So in, in the next verses uh, of chapter two, we see the, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, basically what had been going on uh, at the time was that people were coming to make their sacrifices and offerings in the temple. And uh, they'd be bringing their animals to sacrifice. And there were rules about um, the the perfection of an animal that had to be sacrificed. And they had a little scheme going on where uh, they would find reasons to reject the animals that people were bringing. So this isn't good enough. You can't sacrifice this animal. And people have brought it hundreds of miles. And so, well, what am I going to do now? I'm in Jerusalem with a sheep that's not good enough. And so there were some guys around who said, well, we'll take it off your hands. All right, then we'll give you a little bit of money for it. Wait, wait under the market value. And we've got some 
nice, perfect sheep that you can buy off us, but they're, they're more expensive. Uh, and so they had this scheme going where they'd be buying these animals cheap, and then they'd just be selling the same animals to the next person who came, saying they were perfect. And they were ripping everyone off. They were making money. And um, the whole system was pretty corrupt. And Jesus was not happy. So uh, Jesus overturned all the um, tables and uh, everything like that. And uh, he's stating a judgment, isn't he, upon this old system. And he's got a new system that is better. Well, they asked for uh, a sign from him. Like, what, what gives you the authority? How will we know that you have a right to judge this whole system. And Jesus says, look, destroy this temple. Let's talk about his body, and I will raise it up in three days. The, the sign that Jesus gave, that he state his authority on, is his resurrection, that he would rise from the dead. Uh, well, then the last couple of verses of chapter two we're in now, we're seeing uh, that some people are starting to believe. It says, uh, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So, great, that sounds good. That sounds like progress. It says, though, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He knew what was in man. So what you've got is people are believing, but they're not really trust in Jesus. It's like they've seen something like, oh yeah, okay. But in their hearts, they haven't truly received him. And Jesus knew this. I was talking to someone uh, the other day who was um, not a Christian, but who, who was open, who was asking good questions. Um, but basically what he was saying is like, look, if I, if I had more evidence than I do, I'd believe. And I've heard a lot of people say things like this. But these verses here, so that, there's actually more to it than that. These people, they had the evidence, but there was still something in their heart that was reluctant to give themselves over to Jesus. And John comes back to this theme quite often. And it's a good challenge for us to reflect on in our own lives. Are, are we truly believing in our hearts, truly receiving Jesus in our hearts? Or is it that we've just got our head around, okay, well, I, I'm kind of, I've seen this evidence and and this argument makes us, but in our hearts, are we really actively believing as an ongoing thing? John would want to challenge us that, that that's what we do. And this is elaborated more in the next chapter, and particularly uh, Jesus is telling a guy called Nicodemus that nobody can enter the kingdom unless one is born again. It's not something that we can just, from our own starting point, see a few things and they're like oh well i'm there now the holy spirit needs to completely regenerate us give us a, a new birth a spiritual birth without that we can't truly receive jesus and his kingdom and we get one of the clearest articulations of, of the gospel in the whole of scripture uh, in verse 16 i'm sure you know the verse for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We also see more from John the Baptist in this chapter, the, the witness that we've been introduced to already. He's linking it back to the first sign that we saw because he, he's casting it in terms of a wedding. And he's saying uh, how his job is like the best man. Uh, and Jesus is the bridegroom, the one who uh, should be the centre of attention. He must increase and I must decrease. Moving on to chapter four, then we've got an illustration of how this all works out. Jesus meets a woman at the well. And here we've got a, a contrast, really, with um, an Old Testament story where uh, a character called Jacob uh, met a, a woman at a well. And Jacob at the time was a bit of a mess, really. He was desperate. He was hungry. He didn't know what his life was about. And here at Jacob's well, Jesus is meeting a woman and he's able to provide the answers to her for what her life is about. Up to this point, uh, she's experienced a lot of brokenness. She's had uh, five failed marriages. She's now uh, onto another relationship. And uh, she's having a conversation with Jesus. At, at this point. It broke a lot of taboos at the time, like men talking to women in public and a, a Jew talking to a Samaritan in public. These were things that weren't really done 
but Jesus did. Jesus engaged her in conversation, and the conversation was about thirst, uh, and it started off on physical thirst, and uh, they were by a well, and Jesus wanted some water, but it quickly became a conversation about spiritual thirst, and Jesus was telling her that, that there's a water that uh, wells up to eternal life that he can provide, and uh, the conversation turns to her, her love life, and her failed marriages, and what she's looking for and longing for. It also turns to worship and what true worship is. It's not about the temple. We've already heard about how corrupt things were in the temple. It's not about the mountain that the Samaritans worshipped on. But no, the father uh, is worshipped in spirit and in truth. And he's looking for those who will worship him in that way. And uh, she, she comes to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And so she becomes a witness uh, to the people in her town. She tells them and then Jesus goes to the town and they hear for themselves and they know he truly is the Christ, the Messiah. They believe for themselves now. Then we get on to sign number two. And on the second sign, what you've got is you've got an official who comes to Jesus, who uh, his son uh, is sick. He's going to die. And so this guy comes and he asks Jesus to, to come to his house and to heal him. And uh, Jesus said to him, he challenges his, his faith. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And he's like, no, come down, my, my kid's going to die. And Jesus said to him, go back home and your child will live. And uh, the guy does, he believes Jesus at his word. And so when he goes, he, he finds his servants approach him and tells him that the kid is healed. And um, what this sign is doing is it is saying that Jesus, by his very word, has the authority to do anything. He's putting a question to, to you and me. Is the fact that Jesus has said it enough? Because for this man, it was. I imagine in his shoes, if I was there, I might have been a bit disappointed. I might have thought he's fobbing me off here. No, he, he's got to come down to my house and do it. Do we ever... Think, no, I've got to see Jesus do this for me before I will trust him. Or are we willing to just take him at his word? Well, that's what the sign is asking us. Right after it, chapter five, we're on to sign number three. This time uh, you've got a, a man, a paralytic man, uh, beside this pool. And the superstition at the time was okay, when the uh, pool is stirred, then uh, someone, whoever's the first to get into it, will get healed. And he's been kind of loitering by it for many years but because uh, he's paralyzed he's not able ever to be the first one and uh, Jesus asks him do you want to be healed and he's like well yeah but I can't I, I can't make it happen and Jesus says look get up and take up your bed and walk and so Jesus did now this sign really is where the opposition to Jesus starts because He's told this man to carry his mat, and it, it was a Sabbath day. And uh, like obviously, in the Old Testament, there's the law against working on the Sabbath. But the religious authorities of the day have got really um, kind of strict with it, and they've defined a whole list of things that count as work. And carrying a mat felt, like fell under the definition of work, so you couldn't even carry a mat on the Sabbath day. Like basically anything at all that required any effort or exertion you were not allowed to do that this can't be right they they're ignoring the fact that a guy who'd been paralyzed all his life was now walking and zoning in on the fact he's carrying his mat we've got a problem here ridiculous really but that's what happened so they thought that jesus was a problem that he was a lawbreaker that he was ungodly because of what he'd asked this man to do and so jesus now the way he argues back is is fascinating because it would have been very easy wouldn't it for Jesus to say right let's just kind of have a little theological debate here about what the law of the Sabbath means and um, kind of what, whether you've interpreted it right or whether I have and he could have probably had that conversation and maybe they'd have left a bit miffed but it wouldn't have been too bad but what Jesus said really really kind of poked the bear right? he says this um, verse um, where are we at? Verse 17. Jesus answered them, 
my father is working until now and I am working. Uh, and essentially what he's saying here is like, okay, you've got all your rules about the Sabbath. They don't apply to me because I'm God. That's his response to their objection. And, um, you know, you sometimes hear people say like, did Jesus really ever claim to be God? And you, you read statements like this and you see how they're responded to it. You see how they're heard by the people of the day. Like verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Like they heard him make the claim in that way that he, he was claiming equality with the father. And the rest of chapter five uh, we're just going to kind of put a pin in that for now because it's all about the son and the father and the, the relationship between Jesus as the unique eternal son with his father. And because we're looking at the Trinity in the second session, we're going to dive into some of these verses in more detail then. But really, that's the argument that Jesus is making and that John is presenting to us. We do kind of in the middle of it meet two more uh, of these witnesses that we said we'd see throughout the witness of the father to the son uh, and also the witness of the scriptures like the people he's talking to and they were well versed in their old testament scriptures and yet they missed the point uh, verse 39 and 40 jesus says this you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life Hey, here's a challenge for people who are into theology, who are doing a school of theology, who are learning the scriptures. We can look to the scriptures thinking if we know more about them, hey, there's life. Uh-uh. No, the scriptures point us to Jesus and it's in him that there's life. We need to go that step and come into him, the one who's revealed in the book. Let's make sure we're doing that. And let's jump on to chapter six then. Uh, we get side number four and five in rapid fire succession at the start of this chapter. The first one is Jesus feeds the 5,000. Very uh, famous, well-known story. He's been teaching all day. People are hungry. Uh, there's no food around except like one kid's got uh, some bread and fish for lunch. Jesus multiplies it and feeds the multitude. Um, uh, and, and then people are, are starting to, uh, from this, they're starting to think, oh, maybe there is something special about this guy. We want to uh, know more. They, the crowds are kind of coming. Uh, Jesus is thinking that they're, they're going to try and make me king here. They're going to try and force me into an end game that the time isn't right for. So he, he withdrew. The disciples are on the lake. And then um, Jesus walks on the water to them now i think these are signs number four and five together what do they signify well the crowd that are chasing him uh they they've sort of got it but they haven't got it yet because they've got that jesus is worth chasing after but they're still chasing him for the wrong things and um, verse 26 jesus said truly truly i say to you you're seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they haven't seen these as signposts pointing to Jesus. They're just like, this guy's great. He, he teaches me all day. He feeds me like the food is good. I want to be around this guy. More, more lovely bread. And I, I, I get that he's special. God's doing something through. They call him the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, in the Old Testament, it was promised that there'd be a prophet like Moses. And so they've kind of uh, drawn that link. Um, like in the days of Moses, God gave bread from heaven to feed the people when they were in the wilderness. And it's like, oh, God's giving bread through this guy. Maybe he's like Moses. And uh, Jesus, in his uh, testimony that he gives, it, he moves them way beyond this. He's not just a prophet like Moses who can give bread from heaven. He is the bread from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. You know, when we describe Jesus and we try to articulate who he is, we quite often go for some kind of technical propositions and we'll, uh, no, there's nothing wrong with that, trying to define it, but it's striking, isn't it, how Jesus leads into these vivid pictures, like, I'm the bread of life, and he's 
opening our minds to wonder, well, what is he getting at by saying that? And he's the one who, as we feed on him, we'll find satisfaction for our hunger. Like the woman at the well found satisfaction for her thirst. And he describes it as eternal life. And he even talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, obviously, that's not a literal thing, but he said, you need to be nourished by me, by my body given for you. He's pointing to his death as we believe, but not just, like we, we said it earlier, not just an intellectual ascent kind of believing, but truly believing, receiving and being nourished by him and constantly drawing on Jesus. Then we'll find eternal life. Now, the response of this was some polarization. A lot of people heard this and thought, this is too hard i don't get what's going on this is a bit weird i'm out a lot of people left at this point uh some people didn't some people leaned in like peter for example jesus said are you going to leave as well and he's like well where else would i go you have the words of eternal life hearing the claims of jesus brings us to the decision point doesn't it are we going after him or are we going away from him and uh, there was a warning that even one of the twelve was going away from him, was going to betray him. And, and that was Judas who was introduced at this point. By chapter 7, he's going back to Jerusalem. Again, we often see that there's kind of a rhythm in John where when Jesus is going to Jerusalem, you know that trouble's about to break. That's where kind of all the uh, confrontations and opposition tends to happen. And, and his trips there were often linked into the festivals that the Jews would have. So they, they went down to Jerusalem and there was a pressure put on Jesus by uh, his brothers. Like, hey, uh, just go and uh, do the things in public that you've been doing in the, in the backwaters. Like, show yourself for who you are. It's like a pressure to bring everything to a head again before the time is right. Uh, the, the time, the hour, again, it's that runs through John's gospel. Like, but Jesus did privately go down there. He did a bit of teaching and was spotted so uh, some officers were sent to arrest him and he withdraws chapter eight we we start with um a section that you'll find in brackets uh like uh, chapter eight verses one to eleven the story about the woman caught in adultery uh and it says at the top of it in my bible uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses now uh, what you do with these verses uh, really depends on your understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. I believe that it's here because the Holy Spirit wanted it here and God's inspired it to be here and uh, receive it as Scripture. I also believe there's nothing like doctrinal in it that we don't see elsewhere in the Bible. It's a brilliant story, isn't it? Like this woman who's caught in sin and everyone's wanting to condemn her. And she says, well, whichever of you is without sin, that one cast the first stone and of course none of them can do it and he says well neither do I condemn you go and sin no more but then kind of moving on from that we're on to our second of Jesus's I am statements now I am the light of the world he said about how uh, we'll no longer walk in darkness but through him we'll have the light of life and they're challenging him saying like hey how can you be bearing witness about yourself like, anyone can say things about themselves and jesus said well you need two witnesses i'm one my father is a witness to me as well he's leaning into the trinity again and um he's also kind of challenging them a bit on uh where their fatherhood comes from now they were often teasing jesus about his fatherhood they knew the the story of mary that uh, she was pregnant out of wedlock they were taking digs at jesus about like, who's your daddy jesus and uh, he's like well who's your daddy because you're not acting like children of abraham if you were truly children of children of abraham you do the things that abraham did but actually you're acting like your father the devil and you're doing the things that he did uh, and then they're kind of as you imagine quite offended by this and he says look this is verse 56 now your your father abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad and i like, was talking about abraham saw your day and yeah verse 58 jesus said to them truly truly i say to you before abraham was 
I am. Now that is a uh, incredible statement. It, firstly, it doesn't make sense. You would, you would have thought that the sentence should be, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I was. Like, I was there with him. I was there before him. But he's using this term, I am, which is a very deliberate and a very provocative thing to do. Back in the Old Testament, when God revealed his name to Moses, uh, he revealed his name to be I am. Like in, in the Hebrew, it was Yahweh, but I am who I am. And I am is the personal name of God. And he said, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You're talking about Abraham, but I'm identifying with God here. That's who I am. In fact, all of these I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, they're laced with this I am starting because he's claiming this divinity that, that as God, as, as Yahweh, I am the bread of life. As God, as Yahweh, I am the light of the world. And again, you can see through their response that they've taken exactly the meaning that Jesus intended. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then we hit our sixth sign. So uh, the seven of them, so we've nearly done all of them now, but Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And his disciples started by making it a theological question for him, a little bit of a conundrum. Whose sin caused him to be born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus said, look, it's not about uh, someone's sin causing this. That's not how it works. But this happened so that the work of God may be displayed. And he opens the man's eyes and he gives him sight and he returns to this idea i'm the light of the world i'm the one who enables all of us to to see in this man it was uh, a physical thing as an illustration of spiritually what he does for us all he gives us sight and um, the man's testifying like look this guy he's he's healed me i was blind and now i see i don't have all the answers but i've got a story to tell about what he has done for me and Kind of the, the Pharisees are now a little bit confused. They're trying to work out, is this guy from God? Like what he's done is good. But again, he's done it on a Sabbath. He's breaking the rules. He can't really be from God. And they are dismissing him and they're opposing him. And, and we see actually it's them that are blind. It's, it's not the guy in the story, but it's these people. So oh, we, we know all the answers and Jesus can't be from God. They're truly the ones who are blind. We're going to go into breakout rooms in a minute. Let me just kind of set up what uh, I want you to do. We, we're going into chapter 10, and we'll see the third and the fourth of Jesus's I am statements in, uh, in these verses. So uh, one of them is I am the gate for the sheep, and one of them is I am the good shepherd. And this, this idea of being a shepherd, it's linked to leadership, particularly in the Old Testament, shepherding is a way that the, the leaders of the people are being described. And, and what we've just seen with the man born blind and the Pharisees and the opposition is there's a critique happening of the leadership of the people of the day. And so what I'm going to get you to do, I'm going to give you an Old Testament passage to read about shepherding and the shepherding of God's people. And then also um, chapter 10, verses 1 to 15 to read. If in your groups, read through both passages and with the context of the Old Testament passage, see if you can uh, use that to see what Jesus might be trying to say here in John. So the Old Testament passage that um, I'll, I'll note in the chat for you is Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 16. And here we've got John 10, 1 to 15. Well, Welcome back, everyone. Uh, I know some of, some people are still to arrive back. I hope you had uh, a good time in your breakout room discussing those two passages. I'm sure Tom will chat about that shortly. Um, uh, hands up, who managed to get himself a nice tea or coffee? Few people, yes. Um, anyone, right? Maybe share this in the chat. I know the chat's kind of normally supposed to be for theology stuff, but I'm going to buck that trend. Share that if anyone has had something nice with their tea and coffee, you know, like a nice biscuit or croissant, can you share what you had in the chat? I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I like to know what everyone else has had. I had like one of those little chocolate mini rolls with like cream and jam in it. 
Very, very nice. Perfect. 20 past 10. Perfect time to have one of those. And actually, I went outside, had my cup of tea outside. I just stood outside. Really nice. Big coat on, snow. I don't know. That was just me. Helps me want to get, a, get away from a screen um, when we're on the screen all the time. Um, let me see. What have we got? Have we got anyone sharing anything? Oh, a Naked Berry Bar bacon sandwich with Earl Grey tea. Okay. I think that's definitely the best so far. Um, well, hopefully you've had... Um, Oh, I'm not that quick. I can only get a brew. Okay, right. Someone being quite honest there. Well, I hope you had a good break. Um, I will leave the rest of the theological discussion and chats about that to Tom. I will hand over to you before I witter on about anything else meaningless. Um, over to you, Tom. Cool. Thank you, Andy. Let's pick up where we left off in John's Gospel then. Um, the breakout rooms looked at chapter 10. Um Jesus claiming to be the good shepherd, quite in contrast to um, the, the bad shepherds who were around at the time. And um, Ezekiel, we saw that uh, God himself would be the shepherd of his people. And that echoes in what Jesus said. Um, into chapter 11, though, we'll, we'll start this session from. And this is the seventh and final sign in John's gospel. And it's the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And well, the start of the chapter, we see that Lazarus, who's a friend of Jesus, is sick. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, called for Jesus to come. And um, they were desperate, as you would be in their situation. But Jesus decides not to go immediately. Uh, in fact, he waits. He delays it uh, two days longer than he needed to. And, um, and by doing so... Uh, it means that when he gets there, Lazarus has died and has been dead for a little while. And this is causing stress amongst the sisters. They're um, confronting Jesus. Why didn't you come earlier? If you'd have come earlier, you could have done something about this. And, uh, and now uh, you've dithered and uh, you've waited and uh, you haven't come on time. And now he, he's died. And um, Jesus replies by uh, well well firstly he, he stated this is for god's glory that this will happen you will see god's glory and then he makes another statement about his identity and this is the fifth of the i am statements he says i am the resurrection and the life so he said actually yes there is death but in me there's something bigger than death i'm resurrection i am life well yeah we get we get that we know that there's a a day coming that the last day will come and everyone will be raised and Lazarus will be raised on the day. I get that. Um, but Jesus said, no, 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 we, we're talking about now, here and now, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he calls Lazarus, who's been in the tomb for four days, to come out of the tomb. And Lazarus does, and he takes off the grave clothes and he is alive again. And um, then having seen this miracle happen the authorities are even more antagonistic to jesus because when you've got someone doing things like raising dead people in jerusalem that's going to get the attention of the romans and the romans are going to clamp down on anything that they see as like an uprising so now they've determined we definitely want to put this guy jesus to death and john throws in this line in um, verse 55 now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And, and it's both a, a time mark, like what time in the calendar year we're at, but also it's a theological statement because the Passover was when God saved his people, when a lamb was sacrificed so that the people were spared judgment. And uh, John the Baptist has already introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so the Passover's here. It's time now. The lamb will be sacrificed. The people will be saved the remainder of john's gospel that is devoted to the last week of jesus's life where we're entering into the passion narrative we're hearing about the events leading up to his death and then his death and then his resurrection so and a big question hanging over us at the start of chapter 12 is when they're gathering to celebrate the passover feast is jesus going to turn up everyone's wondering will he show up will he make a scene there what he actually does is he goes to Lazarus's house and he's having a meal 
with the family. And there are different responses to Jesus. So uh, from Mary, there's absolute worship. She's pouring this expensive perfume out upon his feet and wiping it with her hair. You've got a crowd who are, who are gathered who uh, want to see Jesus and and they've heard all about him and they want to see for themselves. And I bet as well, it's not just Jesus that they want to see. I bet they want to see Lazarus too. They've heard this story, like the guy who was dead and is now alive. I want to hear his story and what he has to say. So there's this crowd who wants to come and it's getting pretty awkward for the authorities. Like if you're wanting to downplay Jesus and eliminate Jesus and there's this bloke walking around who everybody knows was dead a few days ago and he's now alive because of Jesus and he's reminding people every time they see him clap eyes on him Jesus he can raise the dead that's a problem Lazarus is a problem Jesus is a problem and actually they're starting to want to kill Lazarus as well as kill Jesus they're wanting to kill both of them now well when the Sunday rolls around Jesus decides he's going to do it. We're like six days from the Passover now. He decides he's going to do it and he enters into Jerusalem and all the crowds come out. And I want you to think of the scene of like an open top bus parade. You know, like when, um, when, when the Olympics happened and it was in London and Britain won all these gold medals and then they got all the kind of athletes on the top of uh, a bus and they had them paraded through the streets and everyone was out uh, and shouting and cheering and celebrating the kind of triumphal heroes uh, are being welcomed from their victory well there's something of that kind of scene here Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on a donkey with all the crowds out and this is a, an enactment an enactment a deliberate enactment of a scene described in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament when Israel's king would enter on a donkey and when Jesus had said to Mary in the chapter earlier you will see God's glory I think he was talking about something like this this is not just kind of a happenstance Jesus knows what he's doing here he's acting out an Old Testament prophecy about the king coming to Jerusalem it's not only Jesus who knows what's happening all the crowds who are there they know what this is it's not just oh let's go and have a look what's this all about they know what it is his opponents know what it is. They know what he's doing as well. And yet, despite everyone recognising the scene, none of them, apart from Jesus, of course, fully get it. It says in verse, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. And the explanation is in the rest of the chapter. But I'll just read a couple of the verses, verses 23 and 24, to see what they'd missed. Jesus answered, the hour has come. So the hour is now come. This is the time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much the way that Jesus was coming as the king to glorify himself, to glorify God, was that he'd die, was that he'd go into the ground and then emerge again. They still hadn't got that at this point. Well, from chapter 13 onwards, the next few chapters are a block of teaching where Jesus is trying to ready his disciples then for what happens next. It starts with uh, washing the feet of the disciples and in doing so he's teaching them about servanthood and if he's willing to serve them so they should serve each other uh, at this point uh, Judas as well uh, he, he goes out to do what he's going to do and betray Jesus he, he commands them to love one another so this is the command and he starts to talk about where he's going to go he's going to go to be with the father and Simon Peter in his usual kind of impetuous way he said well if that's where you're going I want to come I'll follow you uh, and Jesus says like well just hold your horses a second like will you lay down your life for me uh, this is the end of chapter 13 truly truly I say to you the cock will not crow until you have denied me three times so he predicts that Simon Peter is going to deny knowing him and you've got this contrast haven't you Judas and 
Simon Peter, two disciples, both of whom are going to let Jesus down. And yet one of them, we're going to see him turn back. And we don't see that in the other one. But we continue. Uh, he's talking about where he's going. Uh, he's talking about preparing a place in the father's house. And uh, another of the disciples, Thomas, says, look, uh, how do we know where you're going? How can we know the way? And now we get the sixth of the I am statements. This is chapter 14 and verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. That is such an important statement. The way to the father is through Jesus. There is no other way. When we think about how do we get saved, when we think about evangelism and people will often say, oh, yeah, yeah. I know God, or I like to think God's like this, so I, I can get to God through X, Y, Z, different religions, different ideas, different philosophies. Jesus is clear, nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's the unique revelation of the Father. He's the unique way to the Father. And then he promises the Holy Spirit. And again, like we did in chapter five, we're going to put a little pin on this, because again, it links into the Trinity that we're going to be talking about later but Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to be with them when he's gone. By chapter 15 we're on to the final one of the I am statements and Jesus says I am the true vine. He's picking up an Old Testament symbol of the nation of Israel but uh, identifying it with himself. It's as we're in Christ, as we abide in him that we're connected into God and that we will bear fruit and fruitfulness he he defines is obedience to his commands and in particular the command to love one another and then he starts preparing them for what's to come there'll be opposition there'll be hatred there'll be persecution and he talks more about that in chapter 16 and more about the holy spirit as well and promises that he will return he will see them again and that he has overcome the world then he prays. Chapter 17 is his prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And really in this prayer, he's reflecting a lot on his relationship with his father. He says, um, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says in verse four, I glorified you on earth. And verse five, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He also prays for his disciples and for all who would become disciples through them as well. And he's praying uh, for kind of a oneness with each other, a oneness with him, a oneness with the Father. It kind of all blurs a bit, doesn't it? Like if you read verse 20 to 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you've sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Like, who's in who? It's like all kind of blurring the relationships between father, son, uh, us as believers, each other, have all to be drawn together in close relationship. But having kind of talked for a bit, chapter 18 bounces us back into the narrative. And now we're kind of on the, on the night that Jesus died. So um, we, we start with Judas leading them to Jesus. And uh, he's betrayed him. He's sold him for money. And Jesus is arrested. Simon Peter tries to armed resistance. and He gets a sword out, but Jesus like stands him down. He's brought before the high priest and having to give account. But the, the account of Jesus doing this is sandwiched by exactly what he predicted, that Peter would deny knowing him. And, and he's brought then uh, after being before the high priest, he's brought to Pilate, who was the ruler of the region. And Pilate doesn't really want anything to do with it. Pilate says, like, look, you guys have got an issue with him. You judge him. You've got your own laws. You're allowed to do that. And they said, no, no, we can't do it because we're not allowed to give the death penalty. And that's what we're after here. We need you involved, Pilate, if we're going to kill him. Pilate interviews him and he's pretty clear from his interview that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong 
and he doesn't want to do it. So he's trying to worm out of it. He, he's not got the guts just to stand up to them and say, no, I'm not doing it. But he's trying to find a way not to. They've got a tradition that each Passover, uh, a prisoner will be released. So he's like, hey, I'm going to use this. This is a good way out of this predicament. Let, let's invoke this tradition. I'll release your king. And they're like, no, no, no. We want that guy. We want Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was, was a robber. And it's like, oh, yeah, free that guy. But no, make sure you definitely kill Jesus. So in chapter 19, we get the decision is now to be made. They, they've dressed him up in, uh, in a purple robe. They've put a crown of thorns on his head. They're calling him the king of the Jews. And they think they're taking the mickey. It's meant to be ironic, but it's actually prophetic. And the crowd are crying, crucify him. Paul's like, but he hasn't done anything wrong. We can't do that. And they, they say to him, like, well, if you're not going to crucify him, you're not really a friend of Caesar, are you? I thought Caesar was the king around here. Like, these are meant to be God's people who were saying, no, no, we don't want any other king, just Caesar as the king. This guy's claiming to be a threat to Rome. You kill him. And Pilate, he, he buckles. He feels like um, he doesn't have any choice in the end, uh, or certainly he doesn't have the courage to stand up to them. So, so he agrees and Jesus is crucified. And inscriptions put over the cross saying, uh, this is the king of the Jews. And the Jews are pretty annoyed at this. They want it changed, but it doesn't get changed. They gamble over his clothes. Um, and, and around the cross, there's Jesus's mom and his aunt and Mary Magdalene. And, and John is there as well. And um, Jesus says to Mary, you see, John, look after him. And he says to John, you see, my mom, you look after her. And then uh, he, he, he was thirsty. They gave him some sour wine vinegar. And then uh, he said, it is finished. The work is done. And he gave up his spirit. So check that he was dead. They pierced his side. They took him down from the cross and they buried him in a tomb. Well, chapter 20 tells the story of Jesus's resurrection. Now, the first person to discover the empty tomb was Mary Magdalene. Actually, this is a theme we see again in John. Often women are honoured uh, in significant roles. And Mary Magdalene being the first person to, to find the empty tomb is another example of that. She went to tell Peter and John and they ran to the tomb. And I, I love this, right? John decides to include uh, the detail uh, that he got there first. Uh, they, they both ran. But John was the one who beat Peter to it. You know, he said, I read that verse at the start where it's like, look, if I was to tell you everything, there wouldn't be enough room in all the books in all the world. He's having to curate what he says. I mean, which miracle did he not tell us about so that he could say, hey, I beat Peter in a race? But he did. <laughs> um, but they, they saw the empty tomb as well. And, and Mary was stood there weeping outside the tomb. And Jesus appeared to her, risen from the dead. He also appeared to, to the disciples, but, but one of the disciples wasn't around when this happened. And this was Thomas. And they were all telling him, they're like, Thomas, Thomas, Jesus is back. He's risen from the dead. And Thomas is like, no, I've not seen it. Unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I uh, touch his wounds, I'm not going to believe it. And Thomas, I think, uh, is highlighted here because he is the challenge for you and for me, we weren't there. We weren't in the room when Jesus uh, appeared to the disciples. And we're in exactly the situation that Thomas is in. We've had all these witnesses. We've had all these accounts that this is what happened. And we've got this question. Are we going to believe? Are we going to believe based on what we have heard? Well, eventually, uh, Thomas does see uh, and he does believe. He says, my Lord and my God. But Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's uh, kind of what flows into what we started with. John saying, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of my disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In some ways, that's the end of John's gospel. Uh, but chapter 21 serves really like an, an epilogue. It's a kind of little extra at the end. And what we see in it is basically Peter being restored. Jesus does a, a miracle where he uh, gives Peter this miraculous haul of fish. It's 
reminiscent of, of a miracle earlier in Jesus's ministry recorded in Luke. And Peter recognizes, hey, this is Jesus uh, introducing himself to me again. They have a breakfast on the beach and three times uh, he asks Peter, do you love me more than these? And three times uh, Simon Peter says, yes, you know, I do. And the, the three is significant. He denied him three times and now he's restored him three times and said to him, feed my sheep. Remember what we were reading about the shepherd? It's a, it's a leadership role and Simon Peter was commissioned into leadership. And then he's told that he will end up dying for Jesus. And he asked the question, I'm sure we'd all ask, what about John? If I'm going to die, what about him? And she's like, I'm not telling you about him. I'm telling you about you. And then John says, hey, but that guy he was talking about, that was me. And he wasn't saying that I'm going to live forever or not die. He just wasn't telling Peter what's going on. There's loads of other things Jesus did but that I could tell you, but that's all I've got space for. And that is the end of John's gospel. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to see what questions are in the chat. And then I'm going to give you one breakout room reflection. And then we'll come back to the second session so we've got a question about was the third day significant in verse one i think this was asked when we were talking about chapter two uh, if that's not right please correct me but it says on the third day there was a wedding at cana in galilee um i don't think it's significant in the sense of the third day and the resurrection i, I think it's just chronology we've seen in chapter one um verse 29 the next day Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. I think you should tell us when it happened in relation to the other things. And I wouldn't read more into it than that, although some may. Um, we also have a question. Do we think John 17 prayer happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, and he's saying that only Rome can give the death penalty. Uh, they were saying he was guilty before he'd even been tried. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, they, they concluded his guilt before his trial. I agree with that. And um, yeah, I, um, I think if you look at the start of chapter 18, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Um, so I don't know if necessarily this prayer was prayed in Gethsemane, maybe uh, it was, but it looks like he was entering a garden after the prayer. So uh, this may have been prayed uh, somewhere else, the upper room, perhaps. Uh, but I, I don't know for sure. It's possible. Um, yeah, I don't see any other questions in. Uh, let, let me give you the breakout room activity. Uh, we'll, we'll make this a bit quicker than the other ones. We'll give you six minutes. Um, and all I want is each of you to share for you what is one highlight for you from John's Gospel and what is one new insight about John's gospel uh, that you've got from this morning? Thank you so much, um, Tom, for um, joining us uh, today and teaching us, taking us through the book of John, which has been great just to, just to go through the book. 